I had this dream that I got up here this morning and I couldn't remember anything that I wanted to say. And um, also the orange dot is making me nervous. Uh, yeah, I, and so I'm looking at my notes up here and none of it's making any sense and I don't know what I'm supposed to talk about. So uh, with any luck, that won't happen. I, I drank an extra cup of coffee just in case. A.W. Tozier, in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, says, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And this is profoundly true because what we think about God informs the rest of our lives. What we assume about God is going to be our world view as believers. So how do you, how do you think about God? Who, who is Jesus to you? What's the first thing that comes to mind when you think about God? We spent several weeks leading into the day of Pentecost considering the works of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So who is the Holy Spirit to you? What do you think about the Holy Spirit? Is he the, the loving, kind comforter in your life, or is he the harsh disciplinarian always trying to root out the sin? Right? How do you think about the Holy Spirit? Is he compassionate, or is he often absent? Does he disappear? Is that what you assume about him? What we think about God is the most important thing about us. The other night, Heather Mercer was here, and those Vox conversations, the two that we've done anyway, have been perfect examples of why we've planted this place, to create a dialogue among people and share the love of Christ before we can ever be stereotyped. And it was awesome. So she's in here sharing her captivity in Afghanistan by the Taliban. And after everything was over, it was pretty late, but we were kind of hungry, so we all went and got some food. And she was sharing some more of the story. And she was the youngest woman in captivity. And so she just said, I didn't do well. You know what I mean? I've told this story 10,000 times, so it can seem kind of like it was all heroic, but I did not do well at all. Everyone was older than me. And one of the most frightening things to her was every night the bombs would start to fall. And they had met people in previous wars who had families that were killed by a falling bomb on a home. And so she just had this constant fear of the night. And so what she said she would do, they had bunk beds in the cell that they were in. And so she would crawl down on the cement floor and shimmy underneath this bunk bed. And they give blankets and kind of wall herself in so that she would have some protection if and when the bomb fell. And she said, honestly, I felt every night like I was crawling into my own coffin. And she was terrified. She said she couldn't turn over, she couldn't move. Her nose touched the bed slat. She was just in there, you know, like a coffin. And the only thing that she could say to bring comfort to her frayed nerves was the name of Jesus over and over and over and over until she would finally 
fall asleep. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. I was talking to a man this week. He has been battling the depths of despair and depression and one of the leaders in his life had come to him and said, the reason for all of this is that you are grieving the single life. You are grieving the fact that you got married. And this is adultery. And he said to me, this is just so not true. This is so not true of me. The only thing in my life that is good is my wife. The only thing that makes me want to go another day is my wife. This is so not true. Don't tell me crazy stuff and attach God to it. What I am is hopeless. I need some kind of practical steps to walk out of this. Don't tell me to increase my scripture intake and everything will be okay. I need some steps to get out of this. I cry out for God's mercy every day. But I'm hopelessly depressed. And I need a practical way out of this. I know God is present. I know that he loves me. But I also know that none of that feels true. What comes into our minds when we think about God, it's perhaps the most important thing about us. If we live our lives completely out of emotional experience, then we're invariably going to come to something we don't understand. Right? We're going to come to something that we've never experienced before. We don't have a grid for it. We don't understand it, and we don't know what to do with it. It just doesn't make sense. It doesn't matter what it is. Some of these things can be terribly confusing. Some of them can be unbelievably painful. It doesn't matter what it is. It matters what we do. It matters how we respond And as we explore this text in Luke today, we have this interesting opportunity to consider what we think about Jesus. When we're reading the gospel narratives, as Christ is moving toward Jerusalem for the final time, he becomes incredibly focused and resolute and what he is about to do. The Bible says in our text today that he set his face toward Jerusalem. He had resolved himself to complete what he had started. And so as the passage goes, it's really the second part of the passage that I want to dig into today, but as the narrative goes, he's got to pass through this Samaritan village, and this is a little piece of comic relief almost. He sends some people ahead into this Samaritan town to prepare for him and he's he's really wanting to go to Jerusalem and the Samaritans and the Jews, they kind of have this thing for each other and so they they don't accept him. So the disciples come back and and they've got the fix. Let's just call fire down from heaven. Just do away from these people. You want us to call fire down from heaven? We'll just do away away with these people. And it's interesting um, 
Because Jesus has never called fire down from heaven on anyone or anything. He's never called fire down from heaven. So it, it gives us a clue that these guys know, at least at this point, for sure that he is a major prophet. Because the only one who's ever called fire down and consumed anybody is one of the major Jewish prophets in their Old Testament. So, so they're just asking. They're just, you can just see it. They just, it's like wanting to do away with Columbia, right? Um, so they're just, let's do away with these people. And Jesus is just not in the mood at all for this. And so he rebukes them. And it's here that we get these clipped, very direct sayings that seem so enigmatic. Beginning in verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes And birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. But let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So is Jesus just in a bad mood? I mean, is he just preoccupied with his death? Is he just, are we finding him in a moment of intolerance? What's the big deal about paying your last respects? What's the big deal about saying, Goodbye to the family. I think to get at this, we have to go back to the beginning of the story. I mean the very beginning of the story. So we're in this garden and there's this perfect man and this perfect woman and they have perfect intimacy and perfect intimacy with God and everything's great and they're talking to the serpent, right? The other night, down here at this restaurant where we're having uh, dinner with Heather Mercer and her, her uh, assistant and her husband. So I'm sitting here, Maxwell's sitting right here next to me, and Mohanad, Heather's husband, is sitting next to her. And if you've ever sat down as an adult and had a conversation with Maxwell, you know that the best thing to do is have a pen. Because he's going to say something that's going to be funny, but it's also going to be profound. You might want to remember it. So I'm involved in this conversation with everybody, but out of the corner of my ear, I'm hearing this dialogue happening between Mohanad and Maxwell. And Maxwell is exploring the finer points of original sin. And he understands that the snake was talking to Adam and Eve. And he understands that the snake was telling lies about God. And he understands that they bought the lies and ate the fruit. What he doesn't understand is how a man and a woman could be talking to a snake in the first place. And so he asks Mohanan, I mean, like in those days, could people understand He is awesome in his simplicity. I I love it. So the story ends with the bite. 
part of the forbidden fruit. Trade is made. Life for knowledge and everything changes in that moment. It would be like waking up this morning and the color green has vanished from the earth. It would be like our sense of taste has been taken from us. So we can be in the kitchen mixing the spices and sauteing things and grilling things and chopping things. And the aroma can be tantalizing and it fills the house and then we get this perfectly grilled steak or maybe these maybe freshly picked berries and cream and we take a bite and there's nothing. Nothing at all. No tang. No zip. No heat, no spice, no nothing. It's gone. Something fundamental to who we are is all of the sudden irreplaceable and gone in our lives. And nothing has been the same. Nothing has been the same since then. We've been struggling at the core level of our souls to get back to this place. We don't know how to get back there. And so we settle just for equilibrium. We do not take hardship well. We do everything we possibly can to just get back to feeling normal and we'll almost settle for anything. We'll go to any counterfeit we can find that will give us some sense of life, some sense of normalcy. We'll make truces with all kinds of things just to keep some sort of peace, some place that we can call comfortable. And often it's a false comfort. Often it's a false reality. But we're settling for something because something so fundamental in us has been lost. It would be like losing green. It would be like losing taste, right? So the man and the woman are in this fallen state. They've separated themselves from God. And God comes looking for them and they're hiding And God has to remove them from the garden, away from the tree of life. And they have to begin to realize that dominion has been transferred. And now they have to deal with this. It's a really sad story, this story of the fall of man. It's a terribly painful story for mankind, and we're still trying to deal with it, right? But it's a profoundly sad story for God. Because he's breathed his life and crafted these people and they've betrayed him. Everything that he had hoped for is dashed in that moment. And so he begins the process of considering how to redeem us. It's a sad story. So man's brought sin into the world. Did God remove Adam and Eve from the tree of life because he knew that now they had the knowledge of good and evil? And if they were allowed to live eternally, they would increase in their power and one day be able to challenge him? I don't think that's it. Consider your bad habits. Consider the thing that you do that your spouse says drives him or her out of his or her mind. 
consider the things that he or she does that drive you out of your mind, right? Think about the oldest person that you know or the oldest couple that you know. If they're still alive together and they're a couple and they um, are not walking with Jesus over the years, they probably get very, very snippy at each other. And this is how they communicate, right? Or the oldest person you know, maybe it's the clicking of the dentures, right? Maybe it's the constant groaning and the constant moaning about all the medicine and the price of milk. Or, you know, it's just this constant drip, as it were, that you have to put up with to be around this person. Now this started somewhere in that person's life. The habits that drive your spouse crazy started somewhere in your life. So when we think about the oldest person we know and the habits that are very annoying, we're looking at maybe 40, 50, 60 years on down the path to where that goes. Imagine what your spouse's bad habit would look like to you in 500 years. Right? Imagine the bitterness that can be in a person's soul, the rage and anger that can be in a person's heart in a thousand years. So it was a profound necessity and a profound kindness that God separated us from the tree of life at this point. The misery would be unspeakable. Last week, Brad talked about the story of the man with the legion of demons. He talked about the layer upon layer upon layer upon layer of things that build up in our lives until they have completely constricted us. And the only way we can get free from this is at the feet of Jesus, but these layers and layers and layers, pretty soon there's a legion of layers in our lives. And this is all based around this guy that meets Jesus as he's coming across the lake. Imagine if that guy had access to the tree of life and he were with us this morning. Imagine what another 2,000 years of demonic oppression would look like in a person's life. The reality is if these layers continue to grow in our lives and there's a legion of layers overlaying who we really are, we're all going to end up in the same place over time. Crazy, filthy, naked, and living among the dead. So what's the point? A couple things. The layers will kill us. They will drown us. They will suffocate who we are. And one of the greatest layers, one of the greatest lies that we so often buy is that all of these layers that are constricting our lives 
are God's fault. What comes into our minds when we think about God is perhaps the most important thing about us. So in the passage today, Jesus is being very direct, but he's not being any more direct than he has been on other occasions. Right? Remember the story of the rich young ruler? Jesus goes right after the thing in this guy's life that is going to hinder him. He's a good man, the Bible says. Jesus invites him to be a disciple. Come, follow me. Which is the same thing he said to all of the others. Come and follow me. The one thing that's in this guy's life that he has to get rid of is the one thing that's holding him back. So Jesus says, go and sell all you have. Give it to the poor. Come, follow me. It's the one thing that's holding him back. And this is what we have in the narrative today. Jesus goes after the same things. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, and you can almost see this person cozying up, just sucking up to Jesus, just kind of brown-nosing, I'll follow you anywhere. I'll go with you anywhere, Jesus. And Jesus is like, really? Really? Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. It's not like we're staying in a nice hotel, dude. It's not like we even know where we're staying. Do you understand what you're saying? He just goes after things. To another, he said, follow me. But the reason that this person couldn't, his excuse was, Lord, let me first go bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, You're alive. Go and proclaim the kingdom of God. This isn't about your last respects. This is about why you think you can't come follow me now. Why there are more important things to attend to. And another one said, I'll follow you, Lord. But let me first say farewell to those in my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who starts this and turns back is fit for the kingdom of God. It's these layers upon layers of reasons why we cannot respond to Christ in our lives now. Why once we get this and this and this taken care of, then we can. It's the circumstances, the layers of our will, the layers of wounds and fears, the layers of habit an obsession. These all start somewhere. And they all sound reasonable. And they are. And then we start rationalizing them. And then they become part of our fabric. And then they grow to be layers until we begin to fall under the weight of them. There are so many of them that now we have a legion of them to deal with. And we can't even find who we are anymore. And we cry out in anger, God, why did you let this happen to me? Jesus goes after these things before they ever become a layer. That's his nature. He always goes directly after the thing. He doesn't mess around with all these layers. He goes after the thing. 
There's a great example of this in the, in the book of 1 Samuel. If you want to read the whole story, it would be chapters 9 and 10. This is Saul. He is being appointed king. So before he's become king, he's identified by Samuel as king. And Samuel lets him know, you're going to be the king. Here's what you do. And so then there's this proper process where Samuel calls the tribes together and he identifies the tribe. And then he identifies the clan. And then he identifies the family. And then he identifies the man that's going to be king. And we pick up this story in chapter 10, verse 20. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near. And the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, is there still a man to come? And the Lord said, behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. How often have we hidden ourselves among our baggage? How often have we used these well-constructed, truly rational reasons for allowing the layers to exist? We do it so carefully, it makes so much sense that even if somebody isn't buying it, they can't really say anything about it. Because it could be wrong, it makes sense, it's rational, it's all the ways that we construct things so that we don't have to deal with anything deeper, so that the agreements we've made with these things get to stay because we've made this reality that we need to stay in, in place. How often have we allowed the layers to build until they're constricting our lives? How often have we allowed the baggage to become so significant that it's life controlling? How often have we let the baggage control us, but rather than understanding what's really going on, we ask God why he has abandoned us? Jesus is going directly after the baggage in the passage today, as he always does. And the ultimate question is what are we willing to not let go of if Jesus were to ask? What are we unwilling to let go of right now if Jesus were to clearly ask? That's the layers. That's the baggage. And that's worth giving some thought to this next week. What are the things I will not let go of if Christ were to clearly ask me. So a lot of times we see the baggage. We've got a lot of training, right? I mean, we have had the best spiritual self-help in the whole world. I mean, America has got it down cold. So we can identify these things in our lives, and a lot of times we'll fight against them, and we'll break the agreements, and we'll renounce the sin, and yet we feel like we're not getting anywhere. 
And so again, we look to God and say, why are you not coming through for me? Why are you abandoning me here? I've done what the books say to do, right? I've announced, renounced the sin. I've broken the agreements. And I'm standing here and I'm supposed to be clean and you're supposed to be showing up now and where are you? And just because we don't have a grid for something or an explanation for something or an understanding, which is one of the things we want so bad, is to understand why. But just because we don't understand why does not mean that the Spirit of Christ is not present. Just because he's not acting according to our will doesn't mean he's not acting. We've all heard this story of Jesus turning the water into wine, right? Awesome story. First miracle, these baptismal jugs filled with water, Jesus goes, whoof, and they're wine, right? That's what we want him to do in our lives. When we renounce the layers and we want water into wine, bam, we're healed, done, Right? We finally identify all this baggage that we've been carrying around and we have this healing prayer session and we cut it loose and we want water into wine. Done. And just because it doesn't happen that way, and sometimes it does, but just because it doesn't happen that way doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit isn't at work. What if we were to realize that water is being turned into wine every day? You see, water falls from the sky and it lands on the soil and it goes down into the soil and it goes to the root of the vine and the vine drinks the water and takes the nourishment from the soil and the sun shines and then the grape forms and then the grape is harvested and the grape is crushed and the blood of the grape is then aged and crafted into wine. Water does turn into wine. This is how our world is created. Just because in our American mindset we don't get it just like that does not mean that the Holy Spirit is not present working among us. It's these layers that take time to peel back the refinement of our lives, the reconciliation of us to God. Our sanctification is a lifelong process. It's not drive-through Jesus, right? We don't get a Jesus happy meal out of this. So we have to change our orientation about what we think about God. And we also have to be willing for Jesus to go after the things before they become things. Which is how he always works. So as we come to the Lord's table and partake of the fruit of the vine, may we change our assumptions about the heart of God toward us and know that he is profoundly good and he is profoundly kind and he is absolutely present. He will not abandon you. He could not abandon you. It will never happen.
no matter what you feel, you are making an assumption about God based on something you cannot explain or understand. We are not as smart as we think we are. God is the great I am. Which is a profound thing to even try to understand. If somebody can say I am that I am and that's how I explain myself, then that's beyond us. God is present. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And so Jesus, we come to you thanking you for your unspeakable love for us. And we're sorry for making assumptions about who you are. And we've all done it. And we renounce and confess now that we're done with that. We invite you to go after the things in our lives before they become things. And we invite you, Holy Spirit, to begin to peel back the layers. Let us stop hiding in the baggage. Create in us a new heart, we ask, in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.